Good morning. I am going to be reading from John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked, again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. I imagine many of you are, are familiar with a, a woman named Helen Keller. If you're not, uh, she lived approaching a, a century or so ago, and she became deaf and blind when she was 19 months old. And in 1933, she penned the following words in the Atlantic. I've often thought it would be a blessing if each human being were stricken blind and deaf for a few days at some time during his early adult life. Darkness would make him more appreciative of sight. Silence would teach him the joys of sound. Now and then I have tested my seeing friends to discover what they see. Recently, I was visited by a very good friend who had just returned from a long walk in the woods. And I asked her what she had observed. Nothing in particular, she replied. I might have been incredulous had I not been accustomed to such responses. For long ago, I became convinced that the seeing see little. How is it possible to walk for an hour through the woods and see nothing worthy of note? Keller proceeds to describe and in vivid detail in the rest of the piece, the hundreds of things that interest her through mere touch. She talks about delicate symmetry of a leaf or the smooth skin of a silver birch, the velvety texture of a flower or the, the cool waters of a brook. And then, then she adds this, listen. At times, my heart cries out with longing to see all these things. If I can get so much pleasure from mere touch, how much more beauty must be revealed by sight? Yet those who have eyes apparently see little. Think about that. It looks like most of you have eyes. <laughs> but, but could it be that we see little. I think she makes a provoking point. It's, it's possible to have physical eyes, yet not actually see all that is around us. And John 9 teaches us that the same principle is, is even more true, friends, in a spiritual sense. We, we think that we know the truth about God when in reality, we're completely blind. And that means that absent of a work of God, we, we will never know or worship God for who he is. So, so this story begins with physical blindness, a case of physical blindness. But the point of everything that follows, in case you didn't catch it already, concerns our spiritual sight. And in particular, the difference between those who, who actually know Jesus and those who just think that they know Jesus. Okay, because until you, you see Jesus for who he really is, friend, not, not, not according to the dictates of human reason, but, but through faith seeking understanding, you will remain blind to the most important spiritual truth of all. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus uses the blindness of men to display the greatness of his power. He doesn't leave us alone in our blindness. And John Newton's well-known lyric, hymns not the power of human self-consciousness. Hear that? or personal enlightenment, but the mercy of God. 
A, mer- a mercy that, that reaches into our spiritual darkness and opens our eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you know the words, and we're going to sing them later today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Many non-Christians know those words, you know. Can sing them. But what they point to, we easily miss. Think about it this way. You notice in verse 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. When a, a bright light shines in a pitch black dark room, one of two things happens. <laughs> what are those two things? Some see what they never saw before. And others are completely blinded by the light. You ever taken a nap on the beach without your sunglasses on? You fell asleep on the sand and then you wake up and you look, look straight up into the sun, you know, and, and you're blinded. Light can blind us and light can help us see. And that, that twofold spiritual dynamic at, at work in this chapter, because it's at work here too, hasn't changed in the last few thousand years, friends. As, as the light of the world, what Jesus came to do is what he continues to do today. Look at verse 39. This is the whole chapter in a nutshell. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He's, he's not trying to be cool with his words, deep for the sake of making an impression, okay? What, what's Jesus saying? Two things. Jesus gives sight to those who are blind and Jesus blinds those who think they can see. That's what he's saying. And, and we need to look really carefully at each of those actions in turn, okay? So here's our roadmap. We're gonna consider the first one this morning. Jesus gives sight to those who are blind by focusing on the experience of the blind man in this chapter. And then next Sunday, you all can feel this coming, right? We're going to do a part two (laughs) and we're going to come back and read the exact same chapter and we're going to focus on the experience of the Pharisees. And in particular, how Jesus blinds those who think they can see. Because I'm convinced as I've been studying this passage this week, the Lord has way more for us in here than we can possibly understand in a single sermon. So part one of two, but here's the big point for both this week and next Sunday, okay? Jesus uses the blindness of men to display the greatness of his power. That's the point in both those actions, but let's, let's focus on the first way he does that. This is a one point sermon this morning. Jesus gives sight to those who are blind. Single point. We're going to look at that from different angles. Okay. We, we live, let's start here because this is where John starts in verse one. We live in a world filled with inexplainable evil and suffering. We prayed about some of that earlier this morning, and that's good, friends. We don't, we don't gather in the church to act or speak or sing as if everything's great. That's a surefire way to eventually wind up completely disillusioned with Christianity. Now, we live in a world filled with inexplainable evil and suffering where children are murdered in the womb, innocent men and women languish in prison, And genetic disorders and sickness destroy our ability to see or hear or walk. And so we read in verse 1, as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a blind man from birth. Something, Something deep within you should shout, that's not right. That's not the way things are supposed to be. 
to, to which the entire Bible says, if, if that voice rises within you when you read, he saw a man blind from birth, that's not the way that should be. The entire Bible says, you're absolutely correct. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Because it's not the way that God created the world to be. Our our consciousness, in other words, even if you're not a believer, of of what is just and right, corrupted as it is, it, it reflects something of the perfect, just God who created us in his image. And his word is brutally honest about two things. Okay, the the world God created was impeccably good with no sin, no sickness, and no death. And the world that we live in, the world John 9 is describing, is grievously broken. And that causes all of us at some level, at some point, if you haven't already, to, to wrestle with this question. Why are things the way they are. Why are children born blind? If the fact that they are bothers you, then most likely you've asked that question on some level. And in particular, how how does the answer to that question square with the existence and power of God, right? Well, the question posed by Jesus' followers, look at verse two. When they saw the blind man reflects one possible answer. Verse two, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. Whenever any form of personal suffering is present, they are assuming clearly that personal sin must be present. Do you think that's true? Think about that. The the collective testimony of scripture, because that was a bit of a trick question. It doesn't really matter what you think is true. (laughs) Matters what the Lord tells us is true. So we can, we can align our unbelieving hearts with what he says is true. The the collective testimony of scripture to that question is both a yes and a no. So follow me here. All the brokenness in our world, the, the groaning of creation, as Paul says, is rooted in sin. In the sense that it's the result of the curse that fell on the first man and the first woman for rebelling against the authority of God. As our covenant representative, when when Adam sinned, the first man, we all sinned, destroying our relationship with God and and the world that he created. And and as a result, we all deserve death, every single one of us. And that means no blind man can point a finger at God and say, I deserve better. And the Bible also contains many examples of people suffering as a direct result of personal or corporate sin. Okay, if you think of the church in Corinth, okay, mishandling the Lord's Supper, getting sick, or, or Ananias and Sapphira, lying to the Holy Spirit, he's a person, not a force, and being struck down by God. Okay? That's real. But there are also plenty of different examples, friends, where where suffering is clearly not the direct result of personal sin. So you think about Job, you know, losing his family, all his possessions. I mean, we could go up from there. You think about Jesus, right? The perfect sinless son of God dying on a cross. It wasn't for his sin, So so sickness and death, they may be the result of personal sin, 
but, but not necessarily so. That's the truth. It's, it's a possibility, never a guarantee. And that means it should never be your default assumption, especially when you are trying to explain why the people around you are suffering. And that is exactly where Jesus' disciples got off the rails here, where they went wrong. They, they, they treated the, the, the personal sin, personal suffering connection, which can be in play, as a foregone conclusion. And I, and I would simply say, at risk of, <laughs> look at the Pharisees, how could they do that? Look at the disciples, how could they do that? I would have succeeded. I mean, I can sympathize with their move here, at least with their impulse. Why? Because in the midst of suffering, what do we want? We want answers, right? We want answers. We, we want a clear explanation. We want someone somewhere to tell us, why is this happening? Just meaninglessness, that even that very thought that this suffering is meaningless will drive you, a thinking person, insane. And it does drive people insane. And, and the Bible doesn't answer every question, friends, that we might have about verse one. Why would a man be born blind? But the answer Jesus provides in verse 3, look there, is a precious bulwark for the soul. It's a fortress for your soul. In fact, it's the only refuge you've got, friend. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Does that mean God is like some messed up policeman who secretly commits a crime so he can get credit for solving the case? Think about that. No. God never does evil. In the mystery of his sovereign will, he permits and he uses evil and suffering, and hardship to bear witness to his power and glory. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's what that means, okay, friend? Not a single bit of suffering in your life is ever meaningless. Not a bit of it, okay? And, and if you have surrendered your life to King Jesus, you, you can rest in knowing that God will redeem all of your suffering for his glory and your good, you can rest in that. His resurrection proves that. If God could take the greatest possible evil, you know what that is? It's not what's been committed against you. It's what was committed against the son of God. Be humbled by that. But if he could take that, the greatest possible evil, and use that for the greatest possible good, the magnification of his glory and the redemption of his people, then is anything too hard for our God? Is there anything he can't redeem in your life? Hardship, suffering, and weakness is a God-designed opportunity for God. For God to thrill your soul by displaying the greatness of his power. And sometimes that power is displayed, friend, in the miracle of sustaining fragile faith until the day Jesus returns. Need a category for that. But in this case, Jesus displayed the greatness of his power in the blind man's life in two ways he never saw coming. Pun intended. <laughs> First, what did Jesus do? It's amazing how quickly John just moves through this. First, he, he healed his physical blindness. Jesus did that. What's, that. what's that tell us? If you're suffering from physical illness right now, you're not invisible to God, friend. You're not hidden from God. He, he sees you. He knows you. you. You don't have to 
to clamor for his attention, lest he overlook you. I mean, notice, notice what's not here. The blind man wasn't even calling out to Jesus. You realize that? He didn't, he didn't even ask Jesus to heal him. <laughs> he didn't even know he was there from what we can tell. Jesus saw him even though he couldn't see Jesus. And, and he drew near and, and anointed the man's eyes with the dust of the earth, recalling the very way he created Adam back in Genesis 2. And you know what else that muddy put on his eyes is a picture of? I think it's a picture of how the Lord delights to use the most ordinary means to accomplish supernatural things. Jesus didn't whip up a magic potion. Oh, well, you're in luck today for only $5.99. Three payments. They get larger as you go, plus interest. This will heal you. No, he, he took mud. Don't, don't ever say, friend, circumstances have changed such that God is no longer able to work in your life, okay? He can use anything, mud included, to get his will done. And he put that mud on the man's eyes. And then he invited the man to exercise the obedience of faith. Look at verse seven. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the very name of that pool, which some of you probably have in your Bibles, if you're looking right now, means scent, which does what? Points to the power of the one who issues that command in verse seven. Because who is Jesus? He's the sent one, Right? Sent from the Father to make all things new. And the blind man listened to Jesus, trusting the word of a God he had yet to see or know. And he came back seeing. We, we do well to linger here, friends, because the, the compassion and power of God hasn't diminished in the least since that day. The, the Lord still delights to manifest his strength in our midst through, through the blessing of physical healing. How do we know that? How can you know that if you, you think about the last couple of years and you think, have I ever seen somebody being healed? I'm not sure. Well, we go back to the word of God. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul speaks of gifts of healing as one of the graces that God gives the members of his body, the church. And, and what does James 5.15 say? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Not because his faith is great, because, but because his confidence is in the Lord who is great. And so one of, one of the first and most important things that we do as the people of God when we are sick is, is call upon the name of the Lord by praying for each other. In Exodus 15, 26, God says, for I am the Lord, your healer. He's still our healer today, friends. Delights to heal in response to the prayers of his people. And yet, healing from physical blindness Mentioned there were two things Jesus was doing here for this man, was not the end of Jesus' work in the man's life. It, it was just the beginning, really. I mean, that's over by the first seven verses. <laughs> it's just the beginning. And it was actually an illustration, a, a foretaste of a, a far greater work yet to come. And what was that? Not healing his physical blindness, healing his spiritual blindness. It, it, was, a, it was an illustration, an upfront picture of what Jesus ultimately would do in his heart. And everybody who, who knows this guy or who had known him, if you look at verse eight and following, is just dumbfounded by his healing. I mean, nothing like this had ever happened before. Some people even wonder, I mean, you can imagine this, right? Is this even the same guy? I mean, maybe there's a mix up in identity here. Is this the guy who's been begging on the side? Are, are you the guy who's been begging on the side? You can't be the guy who's been begging on the side. And, and what's the poor guy doing the whole time? I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. You know, it's, it, that's a loud moment in the story. 
guys, it's me. It's really me. But that just doesn't make any sense to his friends. People born blind don't just start seeing. So, so they press the guy with a question that I think most pragmatic, rationally minded people would ask. What's their question? How were your eyes opened? How on earth were your eyes opened? Look at verse 11. The man gives a very straightforward response. Notice, especially, how does he refer to the Lord who healed him? The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. You realize he has no clue who Jesus is. (laughs) Who's that guy? Uh, The man called Jesus? He doesn't even know where he went. Where's Jesus? I don't know. He didn't stick around. All he knows is that someone called Jesus restored his physical sight. But, but it seems like even at that moment, the, the wheels are beginning to turn. He, he's starting to, to connect the dots between what Jesus has done and who Jesus must be. You realize we're intended to connect the same dots. As in the word of God, we behold what Jesus has done. We, we're told that, that we might work from that, guided by the word, to realize who he must be. And so when he tells the story to the Jewish religious leaders, a few verses later, the Pharisees, and they ask, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The man replies, verse 17, He's a prophet. He's a prophet. Or, or someone who speaks on God's behalf. We're, we're going to look closer at the Pharisees' attitude next week. But suffice it to say, they are not persuaded that Jesus, who they actually refuse to ever name, if you notice that in this whole passage, has any sort of connection to God. They're not persuaded of that. In fact, they're convinced the exact opposite is true. So they call this poor guy. It's like nobody believes him. Friends, Pharisees. And for a second round of questioning, verse 24. Give glory to God, pal. Translation, you better start telling the truth. It was an oath formula. Tell us the truth. There's no way he healed you. We know this man is a sinner. He has nothing to do with God. He's an imposter. He's leading people away from God. It's the, it's the same what? The same unbelieving enmity that led them to try to stone Jesus back at the end of chapter eight. Attitude hasn't changed. And, but the healed man's undeterred. He, he leaves the question of Jesus' moral relationship to God up to the Pharisees. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But notice this, he refuses adamantly to change or budge or explain away what his own eyes could not reject. What does he say? Verse 25, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And it was like, no matter what, no matter what people said to him, no matter what they concluded or were kind of pressured or urged him to believe, he couldn't deny the, the personal, bodily, physical, real transformation that was taking place in his life. He, he couldn't pretend that away. Friend, both the, the seemingly ordinary, okay, and the manifestly supernatural work of God in you and around you is meant to have a similar arresting effect on you. It's, it's the Lord's way of getting your attention. So, so think about this. Did you get an unexpected check or a side job after a friend encouraged you to trust the Lord to provide financially for your needs? Maybe they even prayed for you. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, maybe they prayed for you. If that happened, friend, that, that's not just good luck. That's God caring for you, getting your attention. You know, maybe, maybe you started coming back to church after being, you might say, 
busy or away, but let's be honest, disinterested, disillusioned for years. But, but you've noticed in, in the last couple weeks you've come back to church, you just find yourself, you can't even quite explain it, more joyful than you've been in a long time. You can't deny that. Don't, don't, don't think, well, that's just an emotional accident. No, that's God caring for you, friend. Or, or maybe you, you look back in your life and you realize you, you did your best to run as far from God, away from God, as fast as possible until one day the Lord drew your wayward heart back to him. Totally changing what you loved, what you cared about, what you were living for. Don't, don't explain away the obvious by when, when somebody asks for an explanation of that, you know, just mumbling something about making smarter life decisions. No, give glory to God. That's God caring for you, friend. What's my point? The manifold works of God, okay, big and small, they're, they're signposts given by the Lord designed to point you back to the truth of his power and goodness. And, and the whole record of God's faithfulness to his people in the Bible, the whole book, is supposed to function in a similar kind of way, friend. So, so when we, we experience or we, we read someone else's experience of God's work, what is that supposed to do? That's a gift to strengthen our confidence in the truth of who he is. And by the way, this is free. <laughs> That's why spending time reading the Bible where we're reminded of God's work in other people's lives and sharing testimonies with each other of how God has been at work when we gather as a church is so important. We, we get to hear over and over again. You need to hear over and over again. I need to hear over and over again. The word of God, the people of God. One thing I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. When we sing a song like Blessed Assurance, this my story, this my song, born of spirit, washed in blood, this my story. You, you realize we're not just singing that in the me and Jesus silo. We, we are singing that to each other. And that story has a profoundly faith-strengthening effect. And let me note here, I love two-part sermons because we have time to linger. <laughs> Sharing your personal experience of God's work in your life, let's just think about that for a second because that's what the blind man was doing, is one of the most compelling ways you can bear witness to the truth of the gospel. It is, okay, especially in a culture that says there's no such thing as objective truth. There's only your experience and mine, right? Your cultural standpoint and mine. We, so what do we do? We don't invest our subjective experience of God with ultimate authority about God. We, what do we do? We reserve that ultimately for the inerrant word of God. That's important. But at the same time, we recognize that our subjective experiences of God, they point to the truth, the objective truth of his person and work. And so it's not easy anymore, at least I haven't found it easy, to find a neighbor or a coworker who wants to listen to your 10 reasons why the Bible is true. If they ask, by all means get started, even if you only have two or three. But realize this, friend. Many, 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 many people still will listen to your story of how God has changed your life. Take advantage of that, brothers and sisters. Tell your story. But when the blind man does that, verse 25, the Pharisees just persist in denying that Jesus has any connection to God. And so the blind man gets quiet, falls prey to the fear of man, and backs away. No. Yeah. No, he, he demonstrates some, for a blind guy who's never been officially educated, remarkable courage. So he starts in verse 31, look there, with a biblical principle. What's that? In general, God displays his redeeming power through those who obediently follow him. Okay, not, not sinners hell-bent on running the opposite direction. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Biblical principle. Second, he adds in verse 32, a historical observation. 
mere men don't heal people <laughs> who are born blind. It's never been done in the history of the world. Notice they don't even try to refute that. And finally, verse 33, he draws the obvious or not so obvious, depending on who you are, conclusion. My healing has to be a God thing. It has to. There's no way Jesus could open my eyes if he's not, what, from God. If God is working in, not working in him and through him. Otherwise, he could do nothing. Why why is John quoting the man's rebuke to the Pharisees? Because he speaks the truth, friends. He's speaking the truth, unlike them. He he sees who Jesus is in part. What does he see? That he is from God. And that, by the way, more than the guy could possibly have known in that moment. But his stubborn refusal to believe otherwise. Okay, maybe he's not from God. He wouldn't go there. That struck the Pharisees as a direct threat to their religious authority. So what'd they do? Verse 34, they kicked him out of the synagogue. They cut him off. It was a power play fueled by arrogant confidence what they thought they knew. Which, let's remember, could not be more different than loving, redemptive, biblical church discipline. Because that accountability thing that Josh and Rachel were talking about, which includes discipline, sometimes putting somebody out of the church if their life isn't in keeping with their profession of faith in a persistent way, that is an act of love and compassion on the part of a church that represents the Savior that goes after the one sheep that is lost. But they weren't doing that. This was a power play. And Jesus' response Verse 35 should remind you, friend, that he is intimately aware of the social injustice and oppression and suffering that his people experience at the hands of sinful men. I'll say it again. He sees you. He knows you. When Jesus hears in verse 35 that they had cast him out, he seeks the healed man out for a second time. And this time, He gives him a far better gift than physical sight. He gives him the gift of a question. Look at verse 35. He heard he'd been cast out. He found him and he said, do you believe in the son of man? That that was another way of referring to the Messiah. to, To the anointed one. In Daniel 7, 13, who would would bring the kingdom of God to pass? Remember Daniel's words, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, there will come one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is what Jesus is asking him. Do you believe in the son of man? Which was just another way of saying, friend, be honest. Where does your confidence for salvation lie? Where does it lie? Does your hope for deliverance from the curse of sin and all our sin is made wrong lie in the Lord and in the Savior he's promised? Or friend, does it lie somewhere else? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you believe in yourself? Do you believe in your riches? Do do, do you believe in the, the arc of history or our better angels? Well, the man's reply, verse 38, verse 36, actually, look there, beautifully captures in a question what the entire gospel of John was written to answer. It's amazing. It's the most important question he could have asked, and it's the most important question you will ever ask. Listen, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. 
I want to believe. I, I know I can't save my else, myself. I know nobody else can save me. It's, it's a God-sized task. So how do I look to God? P- point me in the right direction. Conceptually, I affirm the truth that I need a savior outside myself and it's from God, the son of man. But show me where he is. Show me where he is. And Jesus replies in verse 37 with what I would argue are some of the most moving words in the whole gospel. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it's he who's speaking to you. I, I didn't open your eyes so you could just see the physical world in general. I opened your eyes so you could see me. So, so you could fix your gaze on me. So, so you could know me, the son of man sent from the father, not just to heal your body, but, but to save your soul. Friend, is, by the way, is that what you want more than anything else from Jesus? Do you want him to save your soul? Or are you, I mean, be honest, are, are you here primarily hoping and looking and praying and asking and, dare we, I say demanding, that Jesus just fix your life in this world? Maybe I'll try this Christianity thing out and just see if my life will work better. He, he cared for the man's body. But Jesus has come, friend, to save your soul. And he told this blind man who now could see that what he was seeing with his eyes, Jesus, what he was hearing with his ears, the word of God, wasn't, wasn't a religious data point or, or a file for his shelf of new insightful spiritual knowledge. It was a summons to faith, was it not? Jesus was, he was inviting the man to believe what? That God's real? Or, or that, that everything will work out in the end? I mean, was he encouraging him to just embrace positive spiritual vibes or get in touch with his inner self? No, no, it wasn't an invitation for the blind man to, hey, now that you can see physically, let's talk about getting in touch with your spiritual side. No, it was an invitation for that man to lean the weight of his life on Jesus, the son of God. And in that moment, a second miracle happened. What was that? The creator quickened a spiritually dead heart and made it alive. He, he had... He had seen Jesus with the eyes of his body, right? But now he saw Jesus with the eyes of his soul, with the eyes of faith. He he realized Jesus wasn't just a mere man or a prophet or someone from God. He was God in human flesh. Why? Because he went through all the options and that seemed most logical. No, because the Lord supernaturally enabled him to see what was actually true. Look at verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The greatest blindness in this world, friend, is not a blindness of the physical eye, but a blindness of your soul. Blindness of your heart that keeps you from from seeing your need for a savior. God's provision in Jesus and and believing him accordingly. And so know this, if, if you are a Christian, if you are trusting Jesus' work in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you home to God, then there is one explanation and one only for the presence of faith in your heart. And that's this. God has mercifully opened your eyes. That's all you got. Why? Because we're all born blind. Blind to the glory of God. Blind to the truth of Jesus. Blind to the futility of saving ourselves. We cannot give ourselves spiritual sight any more than we can give ourselves physical sight. 
And both the ability to see Jesus as worthy of our trust and faith to believe in him accordingly are supernatural gifts from God. Nobody sees Jesus for who he is apart from the supernatural work of the spirit. What's the point? It'll be the point of next week's sermon. Jesus loves to display the greatness of his power by giving sight to those who are blind. And I love, in conclusion, how J.C. Ryle captures our appropriate response. Listen, such a miracle above all is meant to make us hopeful about our own souls and the souls of others. Why should we despair of salvation while we have such a savior? Where is the spiritual disease that he cannot take away? He can open the eyes of the most sinful and ignorant and make them see things they never saw before. He can send light to the darkest heart and cause blindness and prejudice to pass away. If you sense in your heart right now, friend, your own spiritual blindness, take heart. Cry out to Jesus. Lord, I'm blind. Help me to see. If you grieve your spouse's or your child's or your friend's spiritual blindness, I want you to take heart. Cry out to Jesus. Lord, I cannot open their eyes, but you can. Would you cause them to see? And if you know Jesus, love Jesus, and believe what the Bible teaches us about God, and you find yourself tempted to scoff at or look down on people who don't, remember, you didn't open your eyes. Jesus did. You're, you're no better. J Jesus laid his hand on you. That's all. That's all. The fact that he uses the blindness of men to display the greatness of his power should fill our mouths with earnest prayer and grateful praise. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God who opens the eyes of the blind. In response to your word right now, Father, we ask that you would do that for the blindness in our own hearts. We ask that you would do that for the blindness that is in those that we love who do not yet love you because they have yet to see you. And we ask that you would remind those of us who think that we see that if we do see, it's only because of you. It's not because we made smarter choices or used our reason rightly. Maybe we did, but even that comes from you. Thanks for being a God who helps us see.